Hello, and welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I'm your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Hideo Kojima, Death Stranding, and Autorship. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. On this podcast, we like to talk about games, and there is no game that is getting people to say, what the fuck, more than Death Stranding right now, I guess. Uh, that's certainly what I said when I watched this trailer featuring Guillermo del Toro, <laughs> Nicholas Winding Refn, right? Some really weird, kind of out there uh, uh, motion capture performances. But hey, man, I'm 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 into it, I guess. Um, but obviously, you know, like we've talked a bunch about auteurship when it comes to film, and uh, the there is kind of this like desire. I feel I, I see this all the time in like Kotaku or Polygon or you know like Waypoint or something like that. There's this desire to sort of unlock the same kind of auteur theory in video games that we kind of sort of see, but is mostly kind of not great in in. Uh, in film. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but I want to open with Death Stranding. How much do you know or understand this project at all? Because I'm going to confess that I know absolutely nothing about it, and I haven't been paying any attention. Have you and seen any any of the, the like teasers before this one? I do think I saw the one... I, I saw the other teaser where, like, it goes into his mouth and the baby's in there. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that one, and I don't remember anything else about it. Like, was there any lore in that? Uh, so there. this is the first time we've seen anything kind of concrete. Everything else has just been kind of like moments. Um, and, you know, everybody's like, oh, it's Kojima. Like, so in, in a weird way for someone who's been following it fairly closely, mm-hmm. this kind of at least answered some questions, which is like it's actually a video game that you play, I guess. Um, you know, uh, I'm, you know, Hideo Kojima kind of famously did the Metal Gear Solid series um, and then was kind of unceremoniously fired by Konami for business reasons because apparently he just doesn't care about, like, the business at all. Um, uh, Quite famously, actually, uh, like, they offered him, like, stock in the company um, and he declined it in favor of more salary, um, which kind of puts you in maybe the mindset as to why he would like, you know, let development for a game go on forever because he doesn't really have any stake in the money lost. I, I guess is the theory. Mm. Um, Konami's also kind of a, like been bullshit about it as well, so it's not like you know it's not like they're the good guys in this situation. Um, but anyway, after they fired him, he formed his own studio, Kojima Productions, commonly known as Koji Pro, um, and uh, I think he got a lot of money from Sony. I could be wrong about that. Um, but he essentially was given free reign to just do what he wanted, and he has done that. Um, and that has included apparently hiring uh, Norman Reedus, Mads Mikkelsen, and Guillermo del Toro um, to do motion capture in a weird game that involves flying whales and babies. And uh, connecting to people is kind of the thesis. Oh, is he... that what it is? You're connecting to another person? I was like, so, I thought so, it so, was like... So, so, so. He put out a statement on Twitter on, on like an image capture, and the plot of the game is that all of the individual cities in America have built walls around themselves, um, presumably to keep out this demon menace or whatever. The um, BTs, yeah, I think. Menace? Okay. Um, 
They talk about a demon menace, and they also talk about the BTs, and I wasn't sure if those were the same entity. Um, I I don't know if anybody is like, to my knowledge, <laughs> to my, like it sounds like they're the same thing, but to my they could be different. And I don't think anybody has a definitive answer on that. Um, but the the idea is that the character, the player character who is who is played by Norman Reedus, named Sam Sam Cedar, or Sam he's he's got like a weird name that's like. Sam, like, Package Man or something. like. Yeah, all- Sam Cedar is, like, a podcaster. <laughs> okay. Um, his, his, his name is, like, really on the nose, kind of like how there's a guy named, like, Die Hardman. Um, uh, 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 but anyway, his job is to connect people uh, or connect the different cities physically. And he has said at some point that um, – oh, his name is Sam Bridges. So, you know – little bit on the nose there. Um, uh, but Koji, I think, Kojima at some point said that it's in some way a metaphor for, like, being connected by the internet but not being connected in real life, which is kind of typical of uh, his stuff. If you've followed any of the stories in Metal Gear Solid, it's all kind of, like, these kind of deep, weird themes that he kind of bounces around, kind of, like, wrapped up in a nutso package. I highly recommend that anybody listening to this cast go listen to the Senator Armstrong speech um, from Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, which essentially kind of kind of like, uh, uh, what is it? Um, it includes this, the phrase, make America great again. And this game came out like in like 2014, right? Like be- before it was a thing, <laughs> right? Like, okay. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's 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 he's he's always been kind of weird and, and interesting. Um, my fear for this game has always been that um, it'll essentially be like the George Lucas effect, where he's not really restrained by anybody, so it'll just go totally off the rails. Um, but uh, I'm excited for it um, at the very least because he 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 always makes something interesting, if not something uh, totally uh, comprehensible, if that makes sense. Okay, well, you know, I, I certainly uh, I certainly understand at least some of that context. Um, when we talk about uh, when we talk about Kojima, who I think might be one of the most famous of these kind of like game auteurs, um, I feel like we also are wrapping ourselves into a little bit of a conversation about the developers on one side and the publishers kind of on the other, right? So, like, a good example of this might be something along the lines of, like, you know, um, uh, like, God, what's the fucking, what's the guy's name from Bethesda? Todd Howard? Todd Howard, right? Like, Todd Howard is a big presence and a big persona in the games industry, right? But he is markedly different than, like, categorically than the like the kojimas of the world right and the same thing for like you know like reggie at nintendo or you know yeah randy right well i mean randy you know like that is that is like a a game development studio they're not a publisher sort of thing but uh, but But i do think randy front man than he is like a a, you know like a lead lead of development or anything yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I, I, I think that there's a, a kind of, um, or like the two guys, you know, Mark Merrill and uh, and whatever that other guy, like the guys that run Riot. There's kind of like this executive. There are these executive business people who kind of are have have a a big persona in the games industry, and then there are also there are. 
people who have a persona in the games industry, but we are, we think of them more uh, on that kind of like artistic level, right? Like I, you know, Kojima is a pretty obvious one. Um, but another one I'm thinking of is like Tim Schafer, you know, like yeah. he is he, like, uh, he, he just really, he really kind of like hits that nail on the head. Um, Ken something who's the, who's the bio yeah ken levine from bioshock is a big one honestly all of the blizzard game directors now that i think about it like ian hazacostas uh ben brode was obviously this for kind of like hearthstone like yeah these guys were sort of like the fa- i mean it, it gets a little weird when it comes to blizzard um and i guess a little bit also nintendo because like they are publishing at the same time that they are developing but i feel like those folks um you know they are leading. The, they are the they are leading the development team, and they are really plugged into that stuff. And so the ability for you know Ghost Crawler or whatever to get sort of like down and dirty with us about the game design philosophy of Mists of Pandaria, World of Warcraft, right, or League of Legends, where he works now, sort of thing. That's a different thing than what Todd Howard does at E3 when he talks about you know. What what's coming out of Bethesda? Do you know what I mean? So I so I I don't know if I agree with you entirely because like I, I think okay. there's like I think um, I think Todd Howard and he's kind of on the same level of say like Ian Hazakostis and uh, uh, Ben Brode in that they I think they all kind of like uh, embody the games but they they don't like or rather they they kind of like are the representative of the dev for the games. I think Todd Howard has some of that, but they're not quite auteurs in the way I, w- I would recognize them. I, I feel that more out of like a Kojima or a Miyamoto um, or uh, or like a Yoko Taro. Um, I think I agree with you on like Tim Schafer um, and Ken Levine where, where like kind of like their auteurship kind of reflects more into kind of the, the, the way the game is presented. Um but I think those other guys you talked about are more kind of just like insights into the dev team, which is cool. But I don't like I don't see Ian Hazakostas in World of Warcraft. I definitely see um, like say uh, Swery in uh, in uh, what's the name of I can't think of a Swery game off the top of my head. But I definitely see like Yotaro in uh, in Near Automata. Sure. Okay. So here, here's the distinction that I kind of want to make a little bit. This is the, a similar distinction that I have when it comes to auteurs in the film industry, just like as a, you know, as an aside or whatever. I, I, I think that some of the conversation that we have surrounding like who is an auteur and who isn't an auteur sort of thing um, is bundled up in kind of an expectation of what an auteur does versus kind of like who an auteur is like so for instance there's there's this notion that you know like this is this is true film Kyrie du cinema like our auteur theory good directors are auteurs bad directors who don't leave themselves in their projects right are you know are not and they are and they are kind of bad but I don't but I I don't think that that's true like I think that there is a distinction between like what we would call like a real or a true auteur on one side and on the other side what we would call like an artisan or like a craftsman is how I kind of think of these guys like they are both equally skilled at making the like making the product but one of them approaches it from the point of view of an artist whereas the other one approaches it from the point of view of um 
like a, a a functional and practical sort of like tool design, right? And like an, the, the easy go-to example for this would be something like, you know what I mean? Um, on the on the Artur side, you have guys like Martin Scorsese who is endemically focused on these certain aspects of film, right? Any of the big, like, the big famous auteurs probably, you know, sit here, like Stanley Kubrick or whatever. But I think the most famous craftsman auteur is Steven Spielberg because he bands, he, he bandies around everywhere and to everything. And he has a couple of little flourishes to him, you know what I mean? But for the most part, right, like, he is a guy who is very willing to change up kind of, like, his style and his direction in order to fit kind of, like, the needs of the project. I think the, um... I think the the comparison I want to make is that maybe, you know, like, a Ben Brode is more of a craftsman, right? Like, he is he is hired by, by Blizzard to sort of make this product, and he can still be the face of it and everything along those lines, but it isn't, like, you know, fundamentally a Ben Brode... Uh, it's not, like, fundamentally, like, a Ben Brode project, and only he could bring, you know, the Hearthstone ethos to Hearthstone or whatever else, whereas... Ken Levine is a true blue real auteur. There's no way that guy makes a project without you going. Or you know, Kojima is the easy is the easier example just because we have Death Stranding. There's no way that that guy makes that project without you going. Whoa. Okay, that's a Kojima thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I didn't mean to imply that that the craftsman archetype or whatever was any lesser no no that. yeah I, I i wanted to draw the i wanted to draw that distinction because i do think it's important i i like this is what i don't like um th- there's a lot of like pro auteur theory and anti-author author theory takes uh like in you know like in the film universe or whatever and i do like that kind of middle ground because i think it's impossible to just d- deny that kind of like autori power that we see in these guys who are you know um who are like these true artists right um, but I don't think that they are any better or worse qualitatively, right? Like, Steven Spielberg is just as good, you know, a director as Martin Scorsese, even though I would classify them sort of in these, like, two different categories, if that makes sense. Um, and I think it's an, it's an important distinction to make for the context of uh, how are we talking about, like, our tours and stuff when we're defining this stuff for the first time in, you know, the context of games. Sure. Um, just kind of out of curiosity, you, you, would you then define Michael Bay as, as an auteur? Oh yeah. I think Michael Bay is, see, this is the, okay. So this is the other piece of it. I think that there are good, like you can be an auteur and be good or be an auteur and be shitty. In fact, I think a lot of people like the Zack Snyder thing, I feel like is that he is an auteur, but that he is shitty in like the, the the popular culture, right? Like his, the style that he brings is very appealing to certain subsets of folks, myself included, right? That generates that, you know what I mean? Like that really fervent fan base. I've also heard tell that this fan base also exists for M. Night Shyamalan, who I also would say it's like, this guy is not tour, but he's very bad. (laughs) But I, but I also, but then there are also like bad craftsman directors. You just never hear about those guys. Do you know what I mean? Because they tend to just like, you know, make a make a project and it's not really good or or anything, and so they don't get any name just, recognition in these. Yeah, they like, just they like they don't get any name recognition and they just kind of like 
drip out of the industry kind of like blood from a wound if that makes sense right like you if you are michael bay you can at least say look at all this stylism that i bring right like i'm an auteur and a producer would understand what that means and put a premium on it nobody puts a premium on a bad craftsman if that makes sense yeah no uh, absolutely um but so i i think i think auteurism is is a weird thing to talk about in the in the context of video games in the first place, because I think there are like, uh, you know, more more than like other media, they have less game directors have less control over the game than say a director has over his movie. I, I think, and um, I think that's why like a lot of these uh, kind of autori works tend to be very kind of single player and very story focused. I think there are there are some exceptions, right? Like I think that. Shigeru Miyamoto's work um, definitely kind of like uh, he definitely leaves his mark on their work. They they all have this kind of charm to them. They all kind of feel like Shigeru Miyamoto games, but I don't think they necessarily yeah. fall into that kind of category. Um, uh, but I just I, I think I think that's maybe why it's a little bit less common in games, just because there's less there, there, there's there, there's more opportunity for. Or there's less opportunity for it, for for a director to leave his impression, or it's, it's easier to kind of like eschew that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that that's true. I also think that there is a certain premium kind of put on certain aspects of um, auteurism in film that games doesn't receive like because of because of the way auteur theory kind of as a historiographical force right has moved through time and it is this thing that people think you know kind of connects them to um like it it, it, like connects them to quality if that makes sense uh it has shifted and built up the economics of the film industry around itself do you know what i mean where it's like you know kojima leaving to go make his own studio and and publish like death stranding on his own is like a really weird weird thing but that is actually you know like if you think about what the movie industry looks like that's actually pretty common right like if you are a director you create a production company and you partner with a studio in order to release your movie right so you know for instance the amblin entertainment this is steven spielberg's brand right lucasfilm is george lucas's like brand George Lucas partners Lucasfilm with Fox to release the Star Wars movies. And eventually, you know, like that gets so big or whatever that it gets like bought up by, you know, it gets like bought up by Disney or whatever. Um, That sort of thing doesn't seem to happen in the video game industry because I just don't think that like big names are draws in that same way, right? Like maybe a couple of them are, but there's a certain you know the there's a certain like kind of robustness to the big actors the big stars the big directors in movies that there isn't when it comes to you know the lead design on on a project or something kind of along those lines do you know what i mean um yes but i think that that's slowly changing and i think that there's a couple of exceptions um i'll point out that in addition to kojima um the guy, one of the guy, minds behind Castlevania, uh, and the guy, mind behind Mega Man, uh, kickstarted Kickstarter projects, kind of on the uh, on the strength of their reputation as the designers of those games. 
Um, Mighty Number no. Nine is largely poorly regarded, um, and Bloodstained comes out this month, um, but it's looking good. So we'll see how those go, and you know, it, it could go either way. Um, but I think that that's kind of like the start of this. Um, uh, the other part of this is I think that some of this reputation uh, can stand with the studio, right? Like I'm thinking of like Supergiant games and Platinum games in particular. Like they have very specific styles to their games that kind of like, you know, you, you're like if you when you play when you're like, this is a Supergiant game or this is a Platinum game. Um, but you don't attribute that to a person in particular. And I wonder if that's kind of like a thing that can live with the company or if it's just, it's, there's actually an auteur there. It's just they, their name doesn't, doesn't bubble out. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this like ship of Theseus problem before. Cause I think it's in that exact same vein, right? Like Bioware is a studio that is known for X, Y, and Z. And well, at a certain point, once enough people leave, who is bio you know, like who is bioware if bioware is all of these new people with all of these new projects is it really like the same you know is it really the same sort of studio and this is something that we've been hearing for a long time right like drew Karpishin is the author like now he's a novelist um but he started out as the um game writer for mass effect one and two, which were like the highly regarded games in that series. And so when Mass Effect 3 comes out and people don't really connect with it, there's a lot of talk that says like, oh, Bioware isn't Bioware anymore because Drew Karpishin left, right? And he's like the guy that wrote, you know, these first two beloved games in the franchise. And when the third one comes out and isn't great, you know, like that's the reason, that's the reason why. And so we do kind of like parse this stuff out sometimes. Um, we parse it out when Ben Brode leaves hearthstone and now hearthstone i guess just doesn't have a game director they kind of have like a couple of different people who are all sort of like faces of, of the game now um or when ghost crawler leaves wow and then there's a little bit of a gap and then okay now it's ian hosacostas right he's the game director he's the guy who's going to you know decide what wow looks like in in the future um and so uh, I do sort of like I do kind of like wonder a little bit how much those two aspects of this whole thing are intertwined. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and I don't know how how you dig into that because I, I do think some of it ultimately is transferable, right? Like I, I do think mm -hmm. that, like, you know, um, I think Shigeru Miyamoto has a particular style, but I think that even the projects he doesn't touch still feel Nintendo-y, if that makes sense. Um, and may maybe that's just, you know, Shigeru Miyamoto is, is such an inspiration that everybody at Nintendo just follows in his footsteps or something equally as trite. Um, um, or maybe just kind of like a company culture thing that kind of values those types of people. Uh, but it's, it, it, it definitely has to be somewhere in the mix. I also wonder how much, like, how, how much, like, these smaller studios, like Nintendo is obviously an exception to this, but like how much these studios are the children of their initial creators, right? Like, like Platinum and Supergiant, who, who are the go-to examples I've been using to, for this, um, I think are pretty closely tied to their original founders. Um, and I think Bioware was too until, and, until they got acquired by EA. I'm um, kind of got diluted, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, 
Although I do think you you can still see some of that DNA there, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I guess I would guess that the the act of working on a project is is uh, necessarily going to imbue you with some amount of uh, of of that DNA, if that makes sense. Um, and you know, maybe it doesn't perfectly carry through, but uh, maybe it, it it at least ties you. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I, I kind of see where where you're coming from, and I also sort of think that like there's a lot of little stuff that will end up, you know, like I'm tr- I'm thinking of uh, like so Morello is was the original um, lead like game lead for League of Legends, right? And one of the big things that he learned because he came from ArenaNet from Guild Wars, um, and his big kind of uh, sort of like revelation in 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 that game was how healers are really tough to do in PVP games, right? Because like in PVE they make a lot of sense because they are kind of the the sustain mechanic and so like, you know, if you are in taking a certain amount of damage, you want to have healers to output a certain or, or or to offset that intake or whatever. And the and the dynamics between tank healer and DPS make a lot of sense, but in a PVP context, right? Like healers just kind of ruin it if that makes sense. And so his decision in League of Legends to say, no, listen, healers are not good and not healthy for the game because of, like, you know, their, their lack of counterplay, the made a real impact on League of Legends because Soraka, who was sort of, like, the definition of a healer in League of Legends, could never be a, a good or strong healer under his leadership, right? And so I think that there are, like... At a certain point, you can kind of, like, crack open the skull of these guys and pick their brains a little bit through, you know, how they write about and how they talk about kind of games and game design and everything like that to understand, okay, not just this is a a Shigeru Miyamoto game, but what about Shigeru Miyamoto makes that game kind of like specific or unique right what are the what are the decisions what are the lines in the sand that he draws and says we refuse to have this or we refuse to have that for instance um and knowing about those lines and kind of understanding those lines i think is is honestly like really the way that we connect with some of these auteurs and i it also kind of makes me want to put some of the you know some of like the craftsmen from earlier back in this kind of like auteur stage in the sense that like ben brode being able to explain why uh he you know like uh, being able to explain why ice rager which is a three mana five two is which is strictly better than a three mana five one magma rager is not power creep that is like part of his game design philosophy and it is going to like influence hearthstone or whatever the case may be do you know what i mean and there's a lot of that kind of stuff going around yeah i i think what you're what you're tapping into is that um how do i want to put this uh is is that um there is whereas you kind of can divide film auteurs into um, artists and craftsmen as you want to the mechanical aspects of a game are always going to have some craftsman element to it um, I feel like there's there's some room but I think there's less room for um, I guess I would call rhetorical flourish but that's not quite the right word like ludo narrative 
flourish. Um, but uh, and, and so you have to at least have some of that craftsman skill um, if you're going to engage it from that direction. Although I don't know if that's necessarily true. So I so I'm I'm going to say I, I don't know how it actually breaks down with Kojima, but. Um, uh, I feel you get more of Kojima's a tour ship out of the, uh, out, out of kind of the story and uh, the plot lines of Metal Gear Solid, than necessarily out of the the gameplay. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, again, I don't know if this is true, but I could see a world where Kojima kind of was the narrative director, but wasn't super involved in the kind of uh, minutia of the gameplay that makes it feel the way it does. Um, yeah. And I think you, you could do that and still come out with, with like an, a tour, or with that kind of a tourish relationship on the other side. Actually, I think a better example of this is, um, is near Automata because, uh, Yoko Taro is definitely narratively in charge and definitely is bad at the gameplay. All of his games before near Automata are generally disliked on the mechanical level, but platinum did all the gameplay for near Automata, which is, you know, its mm. own kind of signature. Yeah, that makes that actually makes a lot of sense. I think I you know uh, there's a lot of talk about how um, there's a lot of talk about how the auteur kind of relationship is like really bad because it doesn't uh, kind of understand the critical relationship of collaboration in this stuff, right? And you hear this all the time when it comes to like film or whatever. Like people will talk about how you know in a movie. There are, you know, there are way more people than just a director who, like, make decisions and make that movie that movie. And we should focus more on, you know, any number of the cinematographer, the editor, like, any of these other kinds of, like, pieces. And I think that that's even more true for, you know, like, for games, just because games are that much more kind of, like, finicky. Um, yeah, they, and they have so, a whole other dimension of interaction that, that movies do do not have at, at all. Well, you know, and I also th- I also think that games kind of are primarily, you know, like, are primarily interfaced with... We've talked about this before, you know, like, this is the games as art, games as sport sort of thing. But, like, people primarily interface with games on the level of, uh, like, play craft rather than, like, story craft a lot of times, which is part of the reasons why we see story craft kind of lifted whole hog out of certain, you know, like, out of certain games entirely. Um, with movies, it's a lot less common that you'll have just, like, you know, uh, a cinema experience, right? Like, that's an art house thing that would never happen in, like, mainstream blockbuster cinema. But mainstream blockbuster video gaming, you know, the the story is kind of take it or leave it most of the time. And so all of those extra things, right, like the, you know, like the game design and all that other kind of stuff – those are the those are the places where I feel like you know you're gonna have to be looking towards um, some of the technical decisions that are being made and kind of say like oh the way that Morello approaches healers is the way he is an auteur it's not, it, it has nothing to do with like the generic weird lore of League of Legends that nobody you know well I'm sure people really care about it but whatever yeah um, honestly you're making me th- me think of uh, Jeff Kaplan. As kind of the face of Overwatch, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, a perfect example. Yeah, just, especially with with that kind of lore comment because every everybody gets on like Overwatch has this like 
really neat implied lore, but they never do anything with it. Um, yeah. Yeah, like all of yeah. the neat stuff of, of the lore in Overwatch is in the past. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it actually, so I, it does raise an interesting point, though, because I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet. It's like Chris Metzen, like kind of where does he fall in this? Because like on one hand, you know, he was really the face of Blizzard for a long time. Um like, kind of as a big executive, right? But obviously the dude is really connected to, like, the writing and the lore and the art and the presentation of what, like, Warcraft is and what Warcraft, like, means and stuff like that. Um, yeah, he, he and, is Thrall, right? Yeah, yeah, he literally is Thrall. Um, and so I feel like he might be the best example of an auteur that... Uh, I mean, you know, like, the best example of an auteur that I can think of in some of these, like, big, giant, giant companies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, and, and I think I think what you've got with Chris Metzen is, is I think he definitely is there. It's just maybe he's been so, like, like it's been around for so long. Um, it just kind of, like, almost Seinfeld syndromed himself into, like, kind of invisibility, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? Like, I can see you making a very strong argument that, that – Work that wow, and kind of all of and in all of Warcraft and, and all of that aesthetic is is a product of Chris Metzen's authorship, but it's been around for so long, and kind of the way we interact with it isn't as kind of like a series of linear narratives in a way that, like, say, uh, a movie or even like a uh, like a Kojima or Yoko Taro game will kind of like give you that feeling that, um, like when you when you kind of like bathe in you know several thousand hours of World of Warcraft, you kind of lose sight of the fact that this kind of does have a, a particular style, right? Like, you know, um, like the shoulders, right? Like this, this is, this is kind of a trite example, but like, I like that, that's, I think that came out of Chris Metzen, right? Like, like that, the, the, that aspect of the design maybe, right? Yeah. Like Cause the, he started as a, he started as an artist. So he was like, he was like drawing these, you know, these original units in Warcraft. Like I think he did the art book for like Warcraft Two or something like that. Um, though I also think kind of like more narratively, right? Like the trading of perspectives between, you know, like the Alliance and the Horde. Um, I think is like a really big and kind of key insight into like Warcraft. If there is anything that I would that I would sort of like recognize as like. Warcraft's kind of like claim to auteur fame as like a universe or whatever. It is that like multiple perspectives um, rather than just like a, a true blue kind of like good and evil that that I think is the the really special thing. And it's you know and it's something that gets really emulated, right? Like a lot of the other MMOs out there would eventually adopt a similar kind of faction system to mirror it, right? Like ESO has. Three factions, um, you know, you can you can join up with different factions in in like fourteen and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that's almost probably even reverberated all the way down to like Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like, yeah, um, the idea that like orcs aren't always inherently evil is a thing that like seems to have like I don't know if this is purely Warcraft's fault, but like that's like. You know, that's like an assumption that seems weird now, right? Like, you know, really all orcs are evil. It's like, yeah, well, that's 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 how it is in D and D, and I, I have to imagine at least at least part of that view is imprinted on the popular consciousness by by Warcraft and by kind of the um, 
view of him. Even kind of like the, the weird kind of uh, uh, like aspects, right? Like goblins, like the, like goblins in particular. Like my view of goblins is largely informed by Warcraft, right? Like the Pathfinder goblins are supposed to be a little bit nuttier, a little bit less smart. But I can't mm-hmm. help but think of think of them as kind of like. As, as Warcraft goblins, right? Like the, the the bankerish, you know, greedy, greedy. Even even though that's not what a Pathfinder goblin is, that's still yeah. the, the image that's etched in my mind. Yeah, and, and and you know, it obviously pulls from other places, right? Like the engineering gnome archetype of Warcraft is lifted from Dragonlance, I think. Is like the kind of the genesis of like, oh, these all gnomes are kind of like master engineers or something like that. Um, and, and, and a lot of Warcraft is lifted from Warhammer. Yeah, yeah, and obviously, you know, like, the basis of Warcraft is lifted from Warhammer, um, which is, like, in turn lifted from Lord of the Rings, Rings. right, which is in turn listed, you know, like, it, it does kind of, like, go back over a certain amount of time. But the, but the thing the, the thing that I want to highlight when it comes to this stuff and when it comes to our tourship is that at a certain point, it becomes, like, divestible, right? So someone can take up kind of the mantle of Warcraft and the new direction of Warcraft will still be kind of recognizably it, if that makes sense. And it's the same sort of thing as, like, you know, J.J. Abrams comes in and makes a Star Wars movie, right? Like, I want to make the Ryan Johnson point, but everybody says that Last Jedi doesn't feel like a Star Wars movie, so I'll just do this with J.J. Abrams, right? Like, the idea that you can have an auteur who is making auteur movies and then hand that project or that universe or that, you know, whatever it is off to someone else who can authentically kind of like replicate it. Right. Like this is something I talk about with the DC movies, right? Like, you know, the way that like the way that the action was kind of set the stage for in the early DC movies, excluding Suicide Squad has basically carried forward into Wonder Woman, Aquaman and Shazam, right? Like all of the, even though those are three different directors who are, you know, divorced from like Zack Snyder and all of, and all of his apparatus or whatever, they still, they shoot their action the same way he shoots his action Right, and there is that kind of unit of oh well. If I look at you know, if I look at these five movies kind of in tandem, I can see that through line of well, all of the action cinematography is really similar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I also think that that's kind of dependent on how deep it runs, right? Like, I think on the one hand, like a very strong style is going to be hard to imitate authentically, like you know. Well, and it's not always necessarily a bad thing, right? Like, I think that the 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 movie that feels most like a Star Wars movie of the sequels is Solo. I also don't think it's, like, the best movie out of those sequels. Oh, maybe. Huh. It's do, you like, do you like Solo better than Rogue One? No, but it's higher to the top than I would want it to be. Um, okay. Uh, just, but that's, that's, that's a Star Wars point, not like a, not like a point that's mm-hmm. relevant directly to this. Um, but, like, you know, like... Like, Wes Anderson, right, has a very specific style. A style that you can parody in a way that feels, like, you know, recognizable, but only as parody, right? Like, if someone went and tried to do a serious movie in the style of Wes Anderson, I feel like it would come off really weird. And, like, like, how do I want to put this? Like, like, uh, like copycat in, like, a bad way, if that makes sense. In the same mm. way that I think if somebody tried to make another Metal Gear game and tried to ape Kojima style, it would not go over well. 
Okay. Okay, maybe that's fair. I don't know. That's tough. You know, like, that is a tough thing. I feel like there's got to be somebody out there that could, like, continue the legacy, right? Or, like, they could, you know, like, a Bio, a Bioshock, another Bioshock game could come out yep. and it would be, you know, like, authentic. I don't know. That's It is really, like, tough to parse because it's one of those things where, you know, until you have, like, a name and you can actually kind of start, like, measuring things up and go, like, oh, well, you know, like, this person would do a, a pretty good job. But the thing is, is that we have a really robust understanding of all of these other directors and stuff than we do, I feel like, game designers. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and the other thing is that, like, you know, games studios are really protective of their properties. It's not like – what it, it, it is pretty natural for, you know, the – you know, like – for it's pretty natural for Batman vs. Superman to flop and then Warner Brothers goes and says, hey, Matt Reeves, we want you to make the new Batman movie, right? Um, whereas it's pretty unnatural for, you know, World of Warcraft Battle for Azeroth to flop and – Blizzard goes to, you know, like the Bioware, the old Republic team, and says, "Hey, can you guys make a new, exp-, you know, like the next expansion for you know, like nobody ever does that because it's all corporatized in a way that that film uh, isn't." Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Um, I also think that, like, if, if I think about it, there's a possibility this is just like uh, I've not, you know, the the toupee problem, right? Like, I've never seen a good toupee is because, you know, if it was a good toupee, you wouldn't see it. Like, another good game in kind of the style would be maybe unrecognizable at, at some point. Like, a, you know, like, would, would be seamless. Mm-hmm. Um, although I also think part of it is that um, there, are, there, are some, there are some auteurs, like, that are more auteur than others, right? Like, um, to use movies as an example, right? Like, I feel like you could do a movie in the style of Michael Bay and get pretty close and no one would feel weird about it. Um, but doing a movie in the style of Wes Anderson would feel weird because it's very iconic to Wes Anderson, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we have as many of those type of deep tours, is what I'm tentatively going to call it, in games, right? Like, I, like, like I think you could do uh, a, a, a game in the style of Shigeru Miyamoto and have it not feel weird. But like Kojima, maybe Yoko Taro, um, maybe Swery, maybe Suda Fifty One, all kind of have their corners that you that you couldn't. Uh, I don't even think that's true necessarily for those last couple. Um, uh, like I think you, like I think they just kind of like are weird, and maybe you could just be weird and it would be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know it is it's it's honestly just really tough. I think yeah. to find uh, to like to kind of like find the answer to this stuff because like I, the do- there's just like a dozen I feel like in in the games industry and there are many dozens in movies like not and, and this is us talking as kind of right like fans and uh, and kind of like critics in a certain sense but like imagine inside of the industry and going to see all of the independent you know movies that are getting these like little budget releases and you're an executive and you're marking down and saying like oh you know like whoa, whoa, this this person really did a good job with their independent release let's like give them a shot right like this is where James Gunn and Taika Waititi come from right like we meet them in the context of Guardians of the Galaxy and Thor Ragnarok or whatever the case may be 
Um, but I feel like a lot of other people are, are going to miss out on plenty of folks that are like this and plenty of games, honestly, that are like this just because like games are structured in a pretty different way. Um, there is an interesting one that I want to bring up. There is like an interesting auteur that I want to bring up because he literally stamps his name on his product and that Tom is Clancy? player unknown. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, Tom, Tom Clancy is multimedia, but that's yeah. 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 Tom Clancy. Yeah. I don't really understand that to be honest. I feel like it must be in like his contract or something. Well, Tom I feel Clancy's like he's dead. <laughs> oh, is he? So I think he wrote a lot of books, and it kind of spun out into a multi uh, multimedia empire from there. Sid Meier is another example of this. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sid Meier is a great example. It's always Sid yeah. Meier's civilization. Yeah. Um, so with Player Unknown, and I was actually just about to mention this. It's weird because like there are a lot of people that only ever put out one game, right? Like if like I, I think this bucks this trend, but like Toby Fox from Undertale. Right, like if he never puts out another game, can you re- like? I, I think you can call Undertale an Atort game, but like, uh, what's what's a mm-hmm. critically well received game, independent game by like a single person? Um, uh, what's the God Jonathan Blow? Yeah, but he. Yeah, but I mean, I mean he made more than one game. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that what you're, is that what you're trying? Yeah, to yeah. No, for? like if somebody only ever puts out one game, I feel like that a tourship idea gets lost in in the wind. Is, is the point? Um, uh, if it, I guess, I guess if they do well, they probably end up putting out more than one game. I was gonna say like Lucas Pope, but he's put out two games: Papers Please and Return of the Overdin. Another very strong auteur, I might add. Um, I think these single person projects lend themselves very well to that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Um. But you know, the uh, going back to your kind of uh, point about it, I I I think that that definitely that that, that definitely resonates. Um, when it comes to some of those indie game, you know, like the the uh, Lucas Pope's. And the Jonathan Blows of the world. Like, how much of that is... I feel like these guys are kind of the true and obvious auteurs in a lot of ways. Specifically because they kind of do everything in, in yeah. those in those games. Um, like, I'm trying to remember. Who's the Stardew Valley guy? Um, who, you know, like that... The development yeah, yeah. was super, super long. Uh... Fucking Christ, concerned. Eric Eric Barone, right? Who is concerned ape? Like the the development of Stardew Valley took five years, and it is like the only game that he made. But he did every single piece of it, right? Like he did the music, and he did the artwork, and he did the game design, and he did you know like all the mechanics and everything like that. And when we talk about some of the bigger stuff, like it's impossible for one person to do any of those sorts of things. Um, so. In the indie games, this is probably, you know, the truest, truest expression of auteurship that we can get. Even outside of, you know, like, it's it's truer auteurship than we get in a lot of movies, I would feel like. Just because it is so singular, right? Yeah, although, like... So, I, I, I think on kind of, like, a very literal level, you have to be right. But, like, I do think that... 
you can make something that is like that, that definitely feels closer tied to the author with a team like like it it doesn't necessarily hold right like uh uh like like minecraft right like i don't get notch out of the out of minecraft um but i definitely get kojima out of metal gear solid if that makes mm. sense um that actually makes a lot of sense to me to be honest and i and i wonder a little bit like because you know i think i think minecraft is an amazing game and it's going to be something that like you know game historians for the next 100 years are going to talk about minecraft obviously um but i feel like so much of certain games that are like minecraft can just be like put down to one very simple and like really compelling kind of like innovation that they did. Do you know what I mean? And with Minecraft, it was like this ability to like take out blocks and place the blocks and you know do the do the whole Lego thing, right? And so when it is so directly tied to that one incredible innovative mechanic, how much of that is really like authorship? You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I think part of this might also be, like, kind of the nature of, of, of sandboxy games. And I know this is, like, a, it's, it's less of a general principle than I'd like it to be. But, like, a lot of really impressive sandbox games are notable on their openness. And that, I think, necessarily divests a lot of authorship from, from the product, right? Like, Kerbal Space Program. Right, like it's definitely got some 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 personality to it, right? The Kerbals themselves and whatever, but um, I don't think you get you you feel the devs in that game because it's mostly about being able to do whatever you want. And at that point, like in the same way that like it's harder to do cinematography in a video game because the player can usually control the camera, it's harder to it's harder to imprint yourself on a game where the basis of the game is being super open and super free. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, I, you know, this this kind of happens a little bit with, like, the Paradox games, I guess I feel like, right? Like, where, because they are... Or, like, Total War is, like, is another good example of this, where because they are... They are so much about kind of creating a big giant game space for you to explore, right? Uh, it's it's impossible to put like a like a singular personality into into something like that that will that will come across, right? Because that is counteracting. You know what I mean? Like imagine a version of like Europa Universalis with a really with like the writing of Borderlands or something like that. That's like really trying to like pop off the page and get in your face. That would like like really get in the get in the way of the game. Because like the game of Europa Universalis is about, you know, doing all of your politics shenanigans and everything along along those kinds of lines. And so like doing the thing that would make it an autori kind of product um, is directly in conflict with making it a good product in that in yeah. that point of view, right? Um, you know, and, I, may, and I, I don't think that applies to everything, obviously, but it definitely applies to that subset of kind of like sandboxy. This is a game that I'm going to use to kind of express myself in a way. Uh, games like that. 
You know, you know, at the very beginning of the show, we said that Randy really isn't an auteur, but I wonder how true that is. How how much is Borderlands very kind of identifiable and uh, understandable style a product of Randy Pitchford? Um, that is then, it's a tough to it's tough to answer because like Gearbox has also done other stuff besides Borderlands, right? Yeah, but none of it's good, so no one plays it. <laughs> um, which is I know I know a very dismissive way to put it, but like. I, yeah, and you know, and I also think that like, Gearbox did Duke Nukem Forever, which was obviously, you know, like awful, but like it was the. It was also trying um, to ape the previous games, right? It was trying to be, like, it was trying to be in the style of the earlier Duke Nukem games. Yeah, and it was also, I think, uh, like a little bit like Borderlands, you know, like it was trying to go for that kind of like irreverent tone and yeah. style and everything. Man, what the fuck? Do you know these Homeworld games? Homeworld Remastered, Homeworld Deserts of Karak. I'm like the, the looking RTSs? at the gearbox. Are they? I have no idea. I don't. Brothers they, in Arms. Are they originally gearbox? I know they're well received, but I don't think that they're. I think that they were a property that they acquired. Wow, going back like through the history to see, you know, like these gearbox, uh, like where gearbox got its start, uh, is. It is very enlightening. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the famous one is Colonial Marines, um, which is, like, you know, terrible. Uh, terrible and, like, fucked up by, like, a weird... Like, apparently there's, like, a... There was, like, a, a bad character in a configuration file, and someone went and fixed it, and, like, the game works, like, 90% better. Really? Um, yeah, this, this, is, this, was, this is an old story, but, like, somebody, like, typoed a configuration file and totally screwed up the AI. Um, I think it like wow they, they like uh, like screwed up like the search radius on some on something or whatever and that's why all the aliens act like are basically non-functional in the uh, in the game. Wow, I you know, okay, fair enough. I I know um, I know a certain amount of uh, of the Colonial Marines like whole clusterfuck. Cause I, you know, I, I like I watched like the Jim Sterling episode on it or whatever, but I never like played the game and I wasn't really paying attention to its like development cycle or anything along those kinds of lines. Yeah, I mean, I, I think oddly enough, this is another case of like authorship, right? Like, Alien Colonial Marines is sold on kind of like the the the, the movie that that Ridley Scott built, right? And and when you make it a, an alien game, you have to try and emulate that. Because um, that's why people come to it in the first place. Yeah, and not to hype for, you know, like, my my pet studio or anything, but when Creative Assembly got, you know, the Alien franchise and got to do an Alien game, they did Alien Isolation, which is this survival horror kind of, uh, kind of game that was really well regarded. So, it, I, I, maybe it is just something about being able to... Uh, like pull out the like the the good get get you know like get the cream of the crop from whatever property you're using do you know what i mean yeah i think so yeah so, but anyway uh, i think we've talked this to death do you have another do, po- do, do you have any do you have any deeper thoughts about about death stranding are, are you? Oh are you yeah, yeah. yeah. To... Uh, I mean, Death Stranding is it coming to PC? No, it's only coming to PS4. 
Yeah, that's what I thought. So th- this is why I haven't been paying attention to it, unfortunately, I guess. I, you know, it's, that's nice. That's Stranding. I hope everybody has fun with it. I'm just going to have to, like, look on, you know, the same way I did with Spider-Man and God of War and just kind of say, like, oh, I'm happy for all of you because I have no plans on getting a PS4 anytime soon. Fair enough. Fair enough. Maybe maybe you should, like, keep your eye on Craigslist. Maybe you want to go for cheap. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I probably should do something along those lines. Uh, just, just because you know, those games are like those. Like, <laughs> in terms of exclusives, the only ga- the only console I, I I'd say like for kind of like the art of the craft that you is is the PS4. Weirdly, that's because it has all these like super super crazy games. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Um, I'm definitely excited to see where it goes because, like I said, Kojima always always uh, tells an interesting story at the least, um, and and we'll see, we'll, we'll 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 see what this weird package delivering game is about. Is it re- is it a package delivering game? I That's- mean, I I have to say I did enjoy so like the gameplay thing where like he builds the ladder. And then yeah, yeah. he does the and he does like the climbing or whatever. And I feel like a game like that would be really interesting. Like just one where it's like this is a a tough environment and you have a bunch of different tools survive sort of thing. Yeah, um so the the package delivering thing is from the last preview where I guess it was it, it kind of seemed like he was like some sort of like weird weird mailman. Um so uh we'll uh We'll we'll see what happens. It's it's definitely I think part of it is like delivering packages between the cities or something like that. Like his nickname is Porter, um, and so it might just be information or something. Okay, but uh, but we'll see. I guess um, definitely definitely got a strong sense of style. Um, yeah. Uh, so fun fact: you can buy like. A collector's edition that comes with a full size fetus, um, like not obviously a real fetus, but like what? that baby. What? You know, you know that what? baby. You know that baby pack. You get a full size one of that with the collector's edition. What the fuck? Could you man? Go to therapy, okay? God, <laughs> what the fuck? You know what I mean? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> what balls on that man like i really like the idea that he made his own studio to do this because i really like the idea that he like walks into like konami and he's like hi i'm kajina and i have a new idea for a game they're like okay tell us about it well it's gonna take this really famous actor from the walking dead everybody really like loves him mads mickelson is in it oh yeah like yeah mm, oh, what a good what a good idea oh and it's like a it's like a you know open world survivalish games with like tools and stuff it's gonna be a lot like metal gear and everyone's like oh yeah yeah kojima yeah and then he's like and you're carrying around a backpack with a fetus in it and then you use the fetus to connect to the death dimension and they're just like get out (laughs) like get the fuck out (laughs) we gotta go back to making our like pachinko machines you piece of garbage Oh, 
So what have you been up to this week, Mango? Um, my man, my dude. Uh, so I've been uh, watching some Brooklyn Nine-Nine and uh, playing some Magic the Gathering Arena. I'm really surprised how long you have been playing Magic the Gathering Arena for. Uh, I really expected it to be a little bit more of a flesh in the pan. Um, yeah. it's what, So there's an event going on now, and there's, week, there's like a weekly events or, or weekly uh, play modes where you can win card styles. Um, and, like, they're different, right? Like, this week was Popper. Um, and, like, getting the 15 wins can be kind of a chore, but, like, like this week I played my 15 wins with kind of a rushdown deck, but I managed to, like, stumble into a combo that I felt found really compelling, so then I built a regular deck around it. Um, and... Now I'm playing with that a little bit, and it's and it's fun. I'm also like iterating on some of my other decks. I don't know. It just feels like there's like there are, there are, there are more cards in the set than in Hearthstone, and so mm. like there's just kind of like more to experiment with. Like I'm finally getting my Simic Ascendancy deck into a nice place. This mechanic that I'm talking about is I basically stumble. So the the format this week is is Popper. So you know you can only play with commons, and I managed to like. Uh, there's a card called, like, tr- something treason that lets you take control of an enemy creature for a turn, untap, give it haste, right? Um, uh, and then there's another card that's two mana, sack a creature, deal four damage to to a target, right? And so the compelling combo there is you steal a creature, attack with it, and then sack it to deal four damage. So you've, you've simultaneously done some damage and... And, and remove the creature, right? It's, it's like mm-hmm. a obnoxious form of removal. And so I built a deck around this kind of cap and sack mechanic. Um, and it's not great, but it's fun, right? Like, I believe at one point you called me, like, you know, king of the jank decks or something. It's definitely what I do, right? Like, I never get it. Like, I have never, got, like, gotten above... I've only been doing it for a couple months, but I haven't gotten above silver um, in ranking-wise, but I'm having a blast while doing it, just, like, running these, like, silly, silly-ass decks... Right before we got onto recording, I managed to pop a combo with Simic Ascendancy that was like, it was it was really disgusting. Like, I like managed to drop something like ten, like forty-ish tokens in one turn using some weird combination of of mechanics, um, uh, maybe even more. And just like I like that, that, that's like that's like the Johnny and me coming out, right? Like, ha ha! I've got you with my stupid combo. Mm-hmm. Now fuck off. Um, uh, and so you know, it, it, it's just it's it's such a flexible game um, that you can like. I think there's more opportunities to win in obnoxious ways than there than there are in Hearthstone, and that, that's why it appeals yeah. to me. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I do think that Hearthstone has quite a lot of meme decks that will do meme things, right? Like Disguise Toast is all about finding the meme decks and playing the meme decks and, you know, getting getting wins off of stupid, dumb combos um, or kind of whatever else. But the thing that has actually really been activating my inner Johnny recently has been the Hearthstone single-player adventure that actually came out like three weeks ago, but I haven't had a chance to talk about it yet, so I'm going to talk about it now. Um, 
one of the cool things that Hearthstone did a couple of years ago is they said, you know what, the the old format, which was a big block, a small adventure that released 40 new cards into the card pool, and then a big block, was not really working out, right? That 40 cards into the card pool was just, like, not shaking up the meta as much as it should or could have. And so they went to a plan that said, okay, every single, you know, like, every single set that comes out is going to be a big, giant chunk of 135 new cards. Uh, as part of that, they were like, listen, we're going to redo our PvE modes and our PvE systems and release them for free along with the like the sets as they come out, right? So this is how you get Ice Crown Citadel, right, that boss encounter uh, or that series of boss encounters uh, came with Knights of the Frozen Throne and then the single-player dungeon run, which came with Cobals and Catacombs, Monster Hunt, Boom Labs, right? Like a whole bunch of different, um, a whole bunch of different single-player modes have come out since then. What they realized is that people were really like on board and they wanted to play these single-player modes, but they wanted to play them a lot more. And so they have gone back to the kind of original mode, but just packaged a PvE mode with every single set of 135 new cards. And the most recent of them, which is the Rise of Shadows, which is all about a bunch of evil villains attacking Dalaran, um, they... the they have released a monster or they have released a dungeon run mode with that where you are playing as you know one of these villains attacking Dalaran or whatever but there are five different wings and a bunch of different starter decks right and you can do a bunch of new things with treasures and stuff like that to like change up how your deck works you can choose between a couple of different hero powers so like the starting deck might be what like a pretty bare bones mage sort of tempo mage spell with the basic mage hero power but after a couple of times of playing you're going to unlock these other hero powers it's like oh freeze you know a minion or right like or a shaman hero power that's like draw a card and overload one or something kind of along those lines right um so the all of that stuff has just been like crack for me uh, because I was willing to sit down and play Rumble Run, which was the dungeon run mode that came out with Rastakhan's Rumble last December. I was willing to sit down and play Rumble Run until I had beaten run, Rumble Run with every single, um, of like every single shrines, and there's three shrines per nine classes. So that was 27 runs completed, and I must have put in like a hundred fucking hours just like doing these Rumble Run ru- like runs. Because each one of them is going to be different because of, like, the roguelike mechanics and stuff like that. And I was just, like, so enamored with the way these these dungeon run mechanics go. In my in my rumble run time uh, of defeating, defeating bosses, all 27, you know, like, all 27 bosses, I have defeated 871 bosses. That's how, that's how long it, you know... That's how long I was I was uh, doing this, and so now that I have all of these other different things to track the win rate of and everything else, like oh my god, the adventure has been uh, the adventure has been amazing. But to the Johnny point, the thing that is the coolest about doing the single player uh, heist Dalaran heist adventure is that nobody fucking concedes when you do something crazy and awesome. Right? Like you know, like if I you know. 
if I choose a creature and I change every other creature in my deck to that creature with some crazy combo or something like that, and so every turn I'm dropping like a Kel'Thuzad that is resing all of my other Kel'Thuzads or whatever the case may be, um, nobody is ever going to just be like, okay, well, you know, you got me and concede from there. So, like, it just feels good to, like, summon the Ancient One and smack someone in the face for 30 damage and they don't concede. Like any, like that kind of thing. And I know that that sounds kind of like basic and I should take less pleasure in it because I'm fighting against the computer that doesn't know any better, but I don't care and it feels great anyway. And so, yeah, no, I, that I, I, is, I, yeah, I, I totally get that. that. That makes perfect sense to me. The ability to kind of like the, the ability to just kind of like actually finish out your combo rather than like get two beats into it and have them be like, okay, I see what you're going and, and scoop. Yeah, and the other thing with the uh, with the uh, the Rumble Run, me- or, I'm sorry, the Dalaran Heist mechanics is that like combining the different treasures you get because like when you when you beat a boss, you might get like a treasure out of that boss, um, and some of them are passive and some of them are active. But like so, for instance, like one of the alternate mage hero powers is. One mana, reduce the cost of a card in your hand by two, right? Random card in your hand by two, right? And one of the treasures you can get is you can cast your hero power twice per turn and its mana cost is reduced by one. So if you get that treasure with the mana cost reducing power, it's just, it is insanely broken, but it's also just like really fun to like, on turn one, decrease the mana cost of whatever by four, and then on turn two, you're playing Cairn Bloodhoof or whatever it is, right? Um, and doing that for free, like all you know, like all the time, every turn, like those big powerful, those big powerful combos just cause people to, you know, to walk away, to concede when they when they happen. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, no, and and kind of kind of in in that vein of keeping playing, right? Like. The thing that's kept me going on magic is because there are so many cards, I can keep iterating on my weird decks and like keep refining them a little bit, making them a little bit better. And like because there's higher card limits, right? Like my Civic Ascendancy deck is looking good, but it's not perfect yet. And I don't have enough cards to to finish it out. I don't have enough wild cards. So it's like, oh, I can keep playing until I finally get all the pieces for my puzzle. And then I'll have the nice deck. I'm sure once I hit some sort of end state for that i'll kind of start to fall off of it again um um, but you know maybe it'll just last until the next expansion and it'll start it all over again um but yeah no i've I've just been really digging uh really digging uh the 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 magic the gathering i've been meaning to get into other things i play a little bit of three king of total war three kingdoms you've probably war or total war man i want to say total war warhammer three kingdoms Kingdoms, Yeah, yeah Uh, yeah, Total War Three Kingdoms has been an absolute fucking trip. I was actually a little bit worried about the game at first because I was kind of having, like, a little bit of trouble or whatever. But it turned out that that was just, like, learning. Like, it was just, like, growing pains. Um, anytime, like, a new Total War game comes out like this, like, I'll, I'll play a campaign for, like, 50 turns just kind of, like, feeling things out. And then I'll kind of start over. And it turns out that I probably should have played that first game for longer because I still really didn't have kind of my eye on the ball. Um, but at this point, uh, I have put in how many hours? Let's see. I put in 31 hours. Which is actually not all that much compared to some of our other friends. Um, friend of the cast Barry has put in forty-five hours. Uh, friend of the cast Nick has put in seventy-five hours uh, of Total War Three Kingdoms in the last two weeks, which is 
wow, respectable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, Nuts. Well, there's just so much to do, and it's just so... Oh, it's just like so fun and it's really like engaging especially just from like a uh, like an optimization you uh, like optimizing your economy standpoint um, this is something that draws me to a lot of the paradox games right like you know I'm I one of the things that I love about Europa Universalis was I kind of deciphered the really arcane trade mechanics um, and once I had a good handle on the on the trade mechanics and I started like okay, I'm going to, you know, abuse them this way and that way and kind of, like, make them work to my to my advantage. Um, that really unlocked the game for me, and I have found a very similar sort of thing with, uh, with Total War Three Kingdoms. Because, like, one of the neat things that Total War Three Kingdoms does is um, your minor settlements are definitionally focused on specific things, right? Like, you can't do that thing where in Warhammer your minor settlements can have different, you know, like, you have three building slots for your minor settlements and like, you know, seven or nine or whatever building slots for your major ones. You have a couple of different building slots for your capitals, but you have, uh, but you can only go up the one tree for all of your minor settlements. If this is a rice paddy farm, you know, this is going to be a rice paddy farm for you. Uh, and so using, the like like learning how income gets generated and what the optimal set of buildings are to build and how to manage things like corruption or character experience and all of these other kinds of things right like that has just been like the thing that really made me go like wow uh when it comes to total war three kingdoms i actually i'm a little bit sad to be honest when it comes to total war three kingdoms because like i love uh warhammer obviously um and Warhammer has better battle mechanics, right? Like the, all of the all of the stuff on the campaign map that that Three Kingdoms does really great um, <clears throat> are kind of mirrored by things in Warhammer that are done better by you know like by having these super varied uh, kind of armies. And I do feel like the battles are a little bit sort of uh, staler, I guess, when it comes to three kingdoms, just because there's a lot less variety in terms of what the mu- the units are and what they can do. Yeah, I, 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 I get that, I guess. Um, I don't know. I've been, I, I, I definitely see that. I, I definitely kind of, I don't, know, I don't have enough experience with Warhammer to really to really comment effectively, so I'll, I'll abstain. Yeah, I mean, my hope is that uh, Three Kingdoms will will pick this stuff up a little bit more over time. I also wonder, you know, like I'm only deep into one campaign and I'm fighting other coalition, you know, armies or whatever. So it is possible that like the Yellow Turban units and stuff like that are like meaningfully different enough that with time I could kind of learn that army roster in the same way that I have a good handle on the army roster of the, you know... Like the dwarves, right? Like when 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 you are going up against the dwarves in Warhammer, you know how they work. You know they don't have cavalry. They're really slow and they're very heavily armored, right? So you need to make like an armor piercing army in order to in order to like meaningfully wage war against uh, against those guys. But the problem with Three Kingdoms is that like it's very hard to 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 make those kinds of just like overall faction level reads so really what it becomes is just like well put the very best units you possibly can in your army and i hope it works out kind of thing which is fine that's always been the case with these historical total war games but um 
And always you kind know. of been the case with history, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? You know, uh, maybe maybe that is the secret sauce that makes that makes Warhammer so special. But uh, it is what it is, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I don't know. I, I find the game compelling, although, like I said, I haven't played a ton of it. I've been just dabbling in it while while playing my my while opening packs you gotta open i have to open more <laughs> packs buddy how, mu- how um, much money have you spent on magic do you spend a lot of money on magic um i've only spent like i think 50 dollars so far no you know i must have spent more on i think i've spent like 70 dollars so far i spent okay. 50 dollars on on the expansion to get 50 packs um and then i spent some money early on for like there's like an, an introductory pack that gives you like a decent deal on gems um Mostly, it's that I pull, like, I like draft in theory, but I always have, like, a mediocre time when I actually go and do it, just because, uh, uh, like, it's part of the thing that I really like about Magic is the deck building aspect and making really weird decks, and you don't get that in draft, right? You get, like, whatever you you draw, Um, and so it, it is less appealing to me. Uh, in even if in theory I should be more in favor of it, um, yeah. Uh, but it's that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I was wondering about that because, like, you know, I, I kind of do a similar thing when it comes to uh, when it comes to Hearthstone. Like, I think what you know, if people talk about the game being pay to win, and I do think that that is fair to a certain extent. Um, but the pay to win aspect of the game. Seems like if you are invested in Hearthstone, it's pretty easy to continue to be invested in Hearthstone, if that makes sense. Like, you know, for instance, um, when the most recent expansion came out, I bought whatever the bundle is, you know, like whatever the, the expansion launch bundle, like 50 bucks or whatever, and it gives you 50 packs. And those packs, plus the gold from just playing the game normally, is basically enough to give you everything that you're looking for but if you're somebody who hasn't played hearthstone in a long time and now all of a sudden you have six expansion worths of cards to make up for in order to play standard again that is a big big price point you know, like that's like essentially asking somebody to play or you know to pay whatever it is like three hundred dollars for the same kind of access yeah no i i i definitely definitely feel that um yeah. Yeah. Right. Card games. <laughs> yeah. Um What else? Have you uh, so you've been watching uh Brooklyn Nine Nine. The thing that I've I have been watching recently um is Futurama. Now I know that when we we were in college, you went like on for for Halloween one year you went as Zoidberg, is that right? I did. I did, yeah. yes. Are you are you like a big Futurama fan? It's weird going back and like watching this show in like a modern kind of context. The things that they're making fun of, especially in like the early part of the series before like, you know, like cell phones are a thing and stuff like that, it's just like kind of hilarious. Yeah, I so it got like canceled for a little while and then restarted, right? That I'm Yeah, that happened like twice, I think. Um they got canceled in season 4 and then they did the made for TV movies. Which was essentially season five, and then it got picked up by Comedy Central for season six, seven, eight. I have no idea how long it went after that. Do you, do you know when that was? 
Uh, that's a good question. I want it because, you know, obviously it started in 1999. Okay, so then in 2003 is when it got canceled. And then it aired on Adult Swim for four years until 2007. And then it was revived in 20, 2007 for the for the direct-to-video films, the, the last of which came in 2009. And then Comedy Central picked it up in 2010. Okay. And then it went all the way until 2013. Okay. I think that I only ever watched... The 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 movies and everything that came before. I don't think I ever watched the later stuff. Oh really? Uh, the later stuff well, actually, I feel like that is or I great. started watching it and fell off of it. Futurama is one of the those shows that I, I it's I think it's easy for the the really episodic TV shows to do this. Um, the 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 show was basically good for its entire run. I feel like um, there really wasn't you know. Like, there was no jumping the shark. It didn't, like, fall off or anything kind of along those lines. It just kind of, like, ended and it was satisfying. And I didn't really feel like there were big ups and downs. I mean, maybe that's not true, but that seems to me the way that it works in the, you know, kind of in the makeup of the, uh, in the makeup of the fandom. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that sounds about right to me. Um, yeah. No, I, I, uh. I can't say that I, I'm a super fan or anything. I liked Zoidberg because I thought he was a goofy character. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I I feel like feel like maybe it wouldn't speak to me as much nowadays. But you know, I why do watching... you think it wouldn't speak to you as much nowadays? Uh I don't. I don't know. I just it's like maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe, maybe I've just consumed the meat. meat. I, I just don't feel any desire to go revisit it. I guess is what I'm really saying. Gotcha. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't know why, but it's like yeah, I've done that. Do you, what? 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 Do you have desire to go and uh, revisit like uh, like like shows from that kind of like time period? Are there shows that you like go back and rewatch all the time or anything? I feel Nothing. like that's not really the case. Nothing that I, like, go back and rewatch all of, but, like, I'll occasionally go watch an episode from Parks and Rec or go watch, like, a Seinfeld episode. Um, and I have the desire to go watch some Sunny, Always Sunny in Philadelphia at some point. I don't know if yeah. the timelines are right there. but Always Sunny is one of those things that, uh, that I want to get into, but I just, like, never do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um... And, you know, occasionally I want to go back and watch, like, some dank anime. Uh, but, uh, I don't know. Friends of the cast, Monik and Akshay and X, um, are constantly... Like, apparently Akshay's watching through all of Naruto now, which is, like, an absurd idea, because there's, like, that five is or six Herculean, hundred episodes. Yeah, a Herculean task. Yeah. Um... Um, and I am not a big fan of Naruto, so... Uh, Why aren't you a big week, fan of Naruto? Uh, hmm? What, what, what uh, about Naruto makes you not a big fan of it? I just find it trite. I also don't particularly think it's compelling. I always thought Naruto was, like, not an interesting character. Um, 
you know, maybe I was poisoned by the dub because that was how I was initially exposed to it. Um, so what really happened was, is like, I saw like the occasional episodes, like, this is neat. And then I went and like watched the first hundred episodes. Um, and like, it was just like, like, and I watched them very rapidly and it was so much filler and recap and, and kind of like weirdness that by the time I got to the end of the tuning exams, I was just like, I'm, I'm done with this. That, yeah, that happens to me with, or with like Dragon Ball Z, which I have a lot of favorable memories of, but I am 1000% positive if I ever went back to it, I'd be like, what the fuck? Because I just feel like, you know, I had a lot more time on my hands as a, you know, as a middle schooler to do, to, to watch TV shows uh, than I, than I do now. And so the idea of, and the other thing is, is that, is that like, you know, when I was a middle schooler, we were watching like two, one or two episodes a day or something like that, which is, you know, pretty tame, um, compared to the sort of like binge model that we have nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's, that's definitely part of it. Um, Plague of Gripes actually has a couple of decent videos about why he hates both both of these shows um, <laughs> um I'll, I'll link them in the description but essentially the argument against dragon ball is that um the the show is always just number go up but like you never actually kind of see that like the action is mostly the same but you're told that the numbers are bigger um i haven't watched a ton of dragon ball so i can't speak to the veracity of that his argument against naruto i think is fair but also like essentially like the idea that like the 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 kind of original pitch of the show um is that naruto is a person that comes from nothing and like through determination uh achieves his ends mm-hmm. um and that's essentially not true i think you can make a very strong argument that the show moved away from that theme into like themes of into different kind of like balanced themes and whatever but like uh naruto is quite literally like crazy crazy royalty that only succeeds because he's got a literal demon trapped inside of him um and like is, really I, yeah. I don't know the story of the, naruto the, the, at all so. so naruto's a baby and he's got the nine-tailed fox trapped inside of him and it gives him in, in intense amounts of chakra which is essentially mana um and it lets him basically cheat um like standard kind of anime protagonist stuff um it's like in fact explicitly in the in the lore like He's, like, very bad at being a ninja, um, at least initially. Like, um, people, like, he can make a lot of shadow clones, but, like, he does it really badly. Like, uh, like uh, apparently, like, most ninjas can make shadow clones, and he can make a lot of them, but that's only because he just, he has so much, he has so much mana, effectively, that he can force it, even though he's using it inefficiently. Like, he's something. got, like, he's got a ton of spell slots or something like that, but all he can cast is arcane missiles, or magic missile. <laughs> More, more like, more like. Imagine if, like, you know, if you were good at it, you could like cast. Like, let's say you had ten mana points, right? And a normal, a, a, a normal wizard or a normal ninja can cast magic missile for five a piece, um, uh, and so he can cast two. Um, Naruto has one hundred mana. But it costs him 10 mana apiece to cast the magic missiles. So he can still cast more, but it's only because he's, like, OP in some ways. There's also a lot of other stuff there. And I think, like the, like I said, the correct response is that the show kind of moved away from those themes. The character that really embodies those themes is Rock Lee, who is 
Um, he's a dude who can't use any ninja magic. He can only do like physical martial arts, the taijutsu. Um, and the thing you learn about him, and he's like, he's really good at it. Like you're shown that he's really good at it. Um, but then you learn that he was actually really terrible at that too. And he got good at it by just like, um, like there's this really kind of like, uh, heartbreaking scene where he's like chopping a block of wood and he's like, I will do 1000 chops. Right. And he'll like, and you see him chopping the, the block of wood and he hits like 800 and then he messes up. He's like, Oh, I messed up. Now I must do 1000 pushups. And so he starts oh doing a thousand pushups and then he messes up and he's like, I have to do a thousand crunches. Um, um, and this is all told through kind of like the eyes of his mentor, who is Mike Guy, who is um, kind of like in the same mold. Uh, you know, so there, there's good moments and there's good fight scenes. I just find I think there's like an abbreviated version of the series, like some some fan project or whatever. And not not like there is there isn't a bridge series, but like mm. not in that style. Bridge series are, are generally funny. So I, I was thinking about maybe trying to hunt that down, um, but then I can't um, I can't retain my aloof disinterest and uh sneer in, in sneeringness about it if i actually go watch it so you know um i like i like to to to, to be mad that all actually wants to talk about is naruto sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel bad i want to like know more about uh like about naruto i feel like i should be kind of the, the other thing about this is it gets it. really like it gets really up its own ass at some point, right? Like some mm. characters have specialized, and that and like if they have the specialist eyes, they can do certain cool things. I think it eventually comes down that like um, that like Naruto is like the incarnation of like one aspect of the god of all ninjas and Sas and it's either I think there's another guy who's like. It might be Sasuke, it might not be. It's the incarnation of, like, the opposite of that, and they're destined to fight this battle for eternity, and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, god damn it. Like, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I, I, I guess I want to know Naruto in the same way that I want to, like, know, like, the Fast and the Furious movies, which is, like, I understand that they are this huge piece of our pop culture that I've just never really interfaced with. And, like, I want to be in the in-group. You know what I mean? Like, I want to understand these people. But, like, watching the Fast and the Furious movies is, like, a weekend project that you can, like, yeah. knock out. Watching Naruto is, like, something you need to dedicate your life towards. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, instead of watching Naruto, go watch... Uh, have, you, have you ever watched Tengu Toppen Girl and Logan? No, I, everybody always, always, always recommends Gurren Lagann to me. Um, well, but at, I have at never some point, it. if we've got a spare week, we could either watch that or, uh, or, or Kill a Kill, or both. Or um, both, yeah, definitely. That'll come after our Barry episode, because I sort of got mango. I'm going to get you to watch Barry. No, I, I, I do want to... I, I <sighs> want so to watch good, Barry. It's just, it's just kind of like whenever I've sat down to watch something, I've been like, I don't feel like thinking I'm just going to put on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is like mm-hmm. light antics. Um, and like Andy Samberg being funny. Um, yeah, I mean, really yeah, fun. like, like Barry is hilarious, but it, it, like, it is like the everything show. It's funny, but it's also like, like dramatic. Like there are moments in that show of just like really insane drama and tension where you're just like, oh my fucking God. What is going to happen next? It's like, which is like the Game of Thrones feeling, right? But like for that to come out of this like comedy show starring like the former, you know, like the former Saturday Night Live guy is just 
absolutely insane. Um, yeah. I, I, I adore Bill Hader, so I will watch it at some point, I promise. I just haven't been able to muster up the mental energy. Okay. I want to watch Terry Crews, like, like yell at people. Yeah, I watched all of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine actually can do that. Uh, like, it does that sometimes in, like, the season finale. You know, it'll be, like... Uh, the, the, there'll be some big plot development that happens, and you're like, oh, or whatever. But for the most part, it's pretty just you know episodic hijinks. Yeah, that's 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 what I want right now. Just smooth. Hey, listen, sailing. that's why I went back to Futurama. So I'm yeah, not going to judge enough. you. All right. Well, if you want to tell us what you think about Kojima or Death Stranding, or Autorship, or any other things that we talked about on the show, you can reach us at subnervousplaygames at gmail.com or podcast at subnervousplaygames.com. You can follow us on twitch.tv slash subnervousplaygames. Leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us a rating. Um, uh, give us money on Patreon, I guess, please. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot that we have that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think that's everything I had. Buddy, do you have anything else that you wanted to promote? I have nothing else that I'm looking to promote. In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.